Proverbs chapter 31, verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. What my son, and what the son of my womb, and what the son of my vows. Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. Is it not for kings, O Lemuel? Is it not for kings? It is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Open thy mouth for the dumb and the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. Open thy mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. And then it continues from verse 10 down into that iconic portion of Scripture that we call the, 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 the story or the description of the virtuous woman. Father, help us, I pray. Give us insight into Thy Word and do for us, dear God, the things that we need done in each individual heart. We realize that's impossible for any one man to stand behind a pulpit and do. And so we pray that Thy Holy Spirit would do His work with Thy Word in each heart. And we'll be careful to give You glory for all of it. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. It's interesting that the book of Proverbs begins with a father speaking to his son. You get just eight verses into the first chapter and we read these words, My son, hear the instructions of thy father. And so we realize that the vantage point of this book is a dad writing to his son. As far as we know, the, the, the father obviously is Solomon and as far as we know, the the son is Rehoboam. And so that's the context of what we read throughout the book of Proverbs. A dad talking to his boy. A father saying, give me thy heart, son, for out of it are the issues of life. A father begging and pleading and, and, and pouring his heart out to the son that God has blessed him with. But we come to this concluding chapter in the book of Proverbs and this book of wisdom and we are immediately made aware of the fact that this isn't the dad now speaking. This is, this is the mother, the wisdom of the mother, and it is her heart as she pours out to him with these words, My son. My son. She literally cries. And, and we'll talk about this at another time, but... Verse 2 is the sobbing of a mother's passion. The sobbing of a mother's heart, which, which to a great degree no man can experience or no man can feel. And I do not mean by any stretch to suggest that a mother loves her son more than the father. I simply mean to suggest that she loves him differently. There is... There is, a different, there is a different angle of love. There's a different reason for love. There 
has been, there has been a carrying of a child within her body for all this time, and now, and now her son is grown, and now he's at a place of making decisions in his life, and it is as though she crumbles on her knees before him and weeps and sobs out the very pleas of her heart to him, my son, my son, she says, there's great passion in those words. Now, the son to whom the mother speaks is King Lemuel, okay? There's not a lot known about that name, Lemuel, and there's been a lot of speculation about who this man is, Lemuel, okay? Some people said that he's just some mysterious king whose name was drawn from the history books and whose story is tacked on at the end of the book of Proverbs. And to me, to be honest, that seems a bit awkward. Proverbs is written by a man by the name of Solomon. And then they find this mysterious king of some kingdom somewhere out somewhere in time. And they take his story and they tack it on the end of this book. And it seems like a little bit disjointed to me as far as my study is concerned. Some people even suggested that he was the king of, uh, of, of an Ishmaelite kingdom. And I think that's ludicrous because the very teachings do not coincide in, in so many ways with the God of the Bible. And, and it seems as though maybe this chapter is disconnected from the rest of the book. Here's Solomon, 30 chapters. His Lemuel, one chapter. And, and it's, it's, it seems to be a little bit of an awkward picture that is painted here. Let me tell you what, what I think. You can recall, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, of David's sin with Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of one of his faithful soldiers that later would be lift, listed among his mighty men. He was, a, he was a great and loyal soldier. When David should have been at war, and when Uriah was at war, David stayed where he should not have been, and that was at home. And, and, and we know the story of how that he saw Bathsheba bathing upon her roof. Now, there's been a lot of speculation over that, and uh, you know we live in a tabloid-minded society, and so I just want to simply say that I do not believe Bathsheba was out doing what we would call bathing. I think it was a, a purification bath where there was no nudity, and she was not there exposing herself to the eyes of 245 men gazing from their roof. I don't believe that's the picture God's giving us whatsoever. I believe that she was a beautiful woman that David saw, and, and, and uh, his look became lust, and his desire became decision. And he called for her and brought her to the palace. And being of a higher level of life, the king, being a man of great influence and, and uh, importance, David entered into a relationship with this woman and scandalized his kingdom. Soon she's with child. And that very scandal threatens to destroy her life and 
wreck his kingdom. So David must act fast. And so he concocts a plan to have the child appear to be Uriah's, and yet that plan fails and things go tragically downhill from there. David sends a letter to King Joab with the orders to send Uriah to the front where the battle is its hottest. And so Uriah dies a hero's death because the great hero of Israel loses heart and acts like a coward. He cannot face the consequences of his own sin. It was, it was his fault. It was his choice. He controlled his choice, but he cannot control his consequences. And so he runs from them. Bathsheba mourns not only for her husband, but for her sinful actions, I'm sure. And in the second book of Samuel, the 11th chapter and the 27th verse, the Bible says that when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done, the Bible says, displeased the Lord. And they who once wrote songs about how that David had slain his ten thousands, now there are whispers of guilt and scandal that drift across his kingdom. A baby boy is born to this unlikely couple some months later, and after the birth of the child, Nathan, uh, David is confronted by Nathan the prophet, and now he must come face to face with the consequences of what he has done. And so the child dies, and Bathsheba lives with an empty cradle and a twice-broken heart. The Scriptures say that David comforted Bathsheba. He realized the broken heart of a woman who had suffered not only the death of her husband, now the death of her child, and, and, and his heart goes out to her. And in adversity, they are drawn together. It is the adversity, the scandal that drew them together and they cling to each other perhaps because of that stronger than ever ultimately another boy is born David looks into the face of that little child and he calls him Solomon it comes from the word Shalom his name is literally Shalom that's he is he is he is a child of peace he has come into a heartbroken difficult, hard, traumatic, dramatic situation. And David looks into the face of his newborn son and he calls him peace. I want, I want him now in our relationship. I want him to bring peace. Maybe, maybe as Bathsheba stares into the face of her child, maybe she fears that the hand of God might fall upon them and that not only will she lose the first child of their union but she she wonders maybe perhaps if judgment will take this child from her also but Nathan the prophet breaks into the room and rather than pronouncing judgment he pronounces blessing he brings the good news that the God of grace and mercy has named the child Jedidiah. That means beloved of the Lord. 
And so here's a family that's been literally shaken and racked by scandal and ruin and it's been nothing but loss at this time. A loss of reputation, a loss of life, a loss of respect. And yet the man of God comes into the room and says, God says he loves that child. God said he loves that child. You want to talk about a God of mercy and a God of grace? Now, Lemuel means literally this, belonging to God. We know that Solomon had two names. Solomon, given by his dad. Jedediah, given by his God. And I believe that Lemuel is a name that was given to him by his mother Bathsheba. Heart pounding, wondering how this would all end. I think she realized (coughs) that this child is a child that was given to me by God. We'll talk later about the vows she made. Because she said, son of my vows. I think that she said, dear God, if you will let this child live, I will do my best to honor you and to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so she called him her pet name, Lemuel. And so in the 31st chapter, I find it a very personable chapter. It is a son, it is a son that is quoting the words and the teachings of his mother. And the description that his mother gave him of what a virtuous woman would be. And he adored her. By the way, ancient writers, ancient Jewish writers agree with that. Okay? So I want you to know if you disagree with my premise today, you not only disagree with me, but with ancient writers. Okay? I just want to settle that right now and let you know that you're doubly wrong. Now, look, in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 2, <clears throat> We find that Bathsheba goes before Solomon. Okay, now here's, listen to me. Solomon at this point is the king. And so as Bathsheba, his mother, enters into the room, the king, the Bible said in chapter 2, verse 19, the king rose up to meet her and bowed himself unto her and sat down on his throne and caused a seat to be set for the king's mother, and she sat at his right hand. You have no idea what kind of a picture that paints. Here's the king of the land. Listen to me. You could not even enter the room of a king unless you were called. You had to stand on the outside of the king's room where the king then would nod and point his scepter to you and that allowed you to come into the room upon penalty of death. So Bathsheba shows up and Solomon immediately not doesn't just allow her in the room, Solomon stands for her. Wait a minute. The king bows to her. The king has a a, a seat set beside him on his right hand, showing the high reverence in which he held his mother. In a culture that was very much male-dominated, throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon advises children to listen and to learn from both mother and father. It's a bit unusual in that day. On four different occasions in Proverbs, he likens wisdom to a woman. He says, 
Wisdom hath lifted her voice. And so he draws the analogy between the woman and the wisdom. And so for some obscure King Lemuel to be included in the book of Proverbs and had his words tacked on at the end of the book would seem to be an awkward addition without any explanation. I believe that the boy whose mother said belongs to God is none other than King Solomon. Now what I want to do in the next few weeks is I want to develop some thoughts from what King Lemuel writes in the 31st chapter of the book of Solomon. The one thing that I would ask for you, men and women alike, mothers and fathers, children, is that we would open our hearts to God's Word. And, and that we would allow God to speak to us and move us. There might be times that we really like what's being said. And then there might be times we opt for a seatbelt. But I want to I just look at some really important raw things that I think that we need to deal with in our culture and in our lives that we can glean from this book. First thing I want to say as I, as I read this, and I've come to the conclusion that King Lemuel is none other than Solomon, and that Bathsheba is the mother that writes to him, the first lesson that slaps me right in the face is simply this, the past should not poison the present. The past should not be allowed to poison the present. I, I don't think that there's any way that you and I can get around the reality that this is a disastrous start, is it not? I mean, come on. I mean, come on. Nobody would, nobody would have said, hey, I'm going to tell you something about David and Bathsheba. They check all the boxes. This looks great. We feel like they've got a wonderful future ahead of them. I don't think anybody would say that. The reality is simply this. It's a, it's a poor start for people. She's the, she's the wife uh, of another man. He was the king, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was the man that had written so many of the psalms, pouring his heart out to God and pledging his loyalty to him. Her husband, David's mighty man, never would have suspected such unfaithfulness in her. And the people of David's kingdom certainly uh, expected so much more than the king that they deeply adored. And, and words of the scandal spread like a prairie fire. So much so that in 2 Samuel 12, 14, when Nathan confronts David, he makes this statement to David. He says, great occasion to the enemies of the Lord. Your sin has caused great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. It's not your name alone that you've hurt, David. You have hurt the name of the Lord God of Israel. And so this thing was not so easily contained. And I have found out in my life that your sin and my sin and our sin and every sin, it can't be bottled. It's, it's, harder, it's harder to deal with. And people, people that are here that have been through hard times would be the first people that would stand up and say, Pastor Dean, you're spot on. It, it doesn't ever turn out as neat. Sin is never neat. Sin is never well ordered. 
And so, this was a season of tabloid fodder in Israel. <coughs> and if you, if, you took a, if you took a poll during that time, and I don't think that anybody would have given this marriage a snowball's chance where the booger man lives to succeed, okay? I don't, I don't, I don't think it checked all the boxes necessary in our minds. I think that it seemed doomed from the start. How can something that began in lust end in love? How could a relationship that displeased God, clearly, wind up pleasing God? How can that happen? And yet in, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 1, it was Bathsheba that God used to preserve the kingdom for Solomon when others were conspiring to take it from him. And if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 1, and you read the lineage of Joseph, the man in whose home Jesus was, was, was raised, you find in verse number 6, And Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And so in the very family tree of Jesus Christ, you find the name of Bathsheba. By the way, it's not just her name that is there. It's Tamar, who was noted as a woman of rebellion. It's, 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 it's um, uh, Rahab, who, who has always been called the harlot. It was Ruth the Moabitess. She's there. And even Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a woman that was the target of so much scandal. Can I tell you this? Would you look at me? God has been in the recycling business for years. And we have no authority and no right to condemn somebody to a garbage heap of nothingness. It's, that's not our decision. We can't say that, 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 that God has no plan and God has no purpose and they have no future simply because of what is in their past. We cannot allow the past to poison the present. And yet in so many of our churches, that's exactly what happens. Somebody staggers in with all their scars and all of their blemishes and all of their faults and all of their failings, and they're kept at arm's length because they're not quite good enough to find a seat at the table where the Pharisees sit. Can I just say this to you? I don't care what you've done or where you come from, that God can recycle your life and restore you to a place of fellowship with Him. Can I help you with this? Would you listen to me carefully? I don't care what you've done and what man holds against you, God won't. Can I tell you that God Almighty can get over what you've done and where you've been and what you did? Can I explain one reason why? Because of Calvary. And that everything you've ever been and everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done, Jesus knew about that when He went to the tree before you ever did it. And I want to tell you what He's done for you. He has paid your sin debt lock, stock, and barrel. And man, in all of his phylacteries and Phariseeism, man may point his finger and may criticize you and, 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 and they may confine you to the hog pen, but the Father, the prodigal Father, will run to you and embrace you.
as you turn to Him. He can recycle your marriage. He can recycle your life and the mess that you've made of it. Second thing I want to say as I have studied this chapter so much in these past weeks is simply this. Not only should the past not poison the future, but we ought not crowd the picture. Okay? Don't, listen to me, don't crowd the picture. Now if I had an opportunity to talk to Claude Monet, the famous painter, I would say to him, Mr. Monet, my apologies. Because there was a time, being absolutely ignorant of art, that I would say to my wife, dude, he had eye problems. I mean, there's no way you paint the lily, which by the way has made him more money than we'll ever think of, but... Uh, you know, back when he, he's famous for it, and he's got this, this lily pond, and I thought to myself, it's blurry. What's, what's the guy's problem? Well, you know what my problem was? I was right here. And I was saying, that, that doesn't really look like a lily pad. And, 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 and the reason is, is because Claude Monet is an impressionist painter. There's a guy on TV that does impressionist paintings. I love to watch his work because he's out there and, and he doesn't have the small brush that he's painting in the fine, intricate details with. He, he's, he's got a, a, a filbert brush and he's, he's, he's scrubbing. The other day he took it, he said, I'm making my soup. He took this soup and painted it all over, all over this canvas and, and then he took a paper towel and wiped out the sky and then he took the paper towel and wiped out a river and then he starts brushing the soup in a direction and it becomes... It, it becomes uh, you know, grass growing up beside the river, and then he's forming trees, and then he's putting in shadows, and I just sat there absolutely stunned. Just stunned. Nobody else was in the room, and I'm talking. I'm like, this guy's amazing. He's an impressionist. And he made this statement while he was painting. He said, to understand impressionist painting and to see the picture, you have to back off. And so he stepped away from the picture and, and he drew the camera back, and it was like a wonderful Gomer Pyle moment. Shazam! There it was. And, he, and he's, he's got his easel set up on a riverbank, and it shows the mountains. And what's on that canvas, it, my mind is saying, that's, that's what he's painting. Absolutely amazing. Can I say this? Look at me. If you get real close to the two of you, if you just crowd out each other, I mean where you're right here staring at all the blemishes and all the spots, some of your marriages don't make sense to me. You're as different as night and day. I mean, I mean, one of you is introverted, the other is extroverted. One of you is a cheap miser that squeezes pennies so hard that Abe Lincoln has a migraine. The other is a borderline shopaholic. One is indoorsy, the other is outdoorsy. One is decaf, the other is, I'm talking full-on, high-rev, double-shot espresso. One is city and the other's country. One's classical, the other's bluegrass. One is formal and the other is casual. One of you is an Enneagram 8 wing seven, and the other is an Enneagram three, wing two. Susie, would you raise your hand? That's what Susie and I are. I'm the wing eight, she's the three two. That's why I've carried our marriage all these years. I mean, it's, it's look, you think it's tough? Be an eight seven, carrying and marrying to a three two. It's not easy. 
And if you don't believe that Enneagrams are actual and work, good. I don't either. But anyhow, when James, listen, when Dean the son of James married Susie the daughter of Betty Ann, the angels refused to attend the wedding. Fireflies went dark. Birds stopped singing. It was like, ain't no way. There is no way this one is going to work. But August the 9th, we celebrate 47 years together. Can I say this? God can take two polar opposites that have so many differences. And if they're willing to just step back and see the bigger picture, and stop focusing on all the blurred parts and all of the blemishes, if they could just step back and look at what God has done and what God can do, there's a bigger picture there that looks a lot better than it does up close. God can teach us to harmonize. But I want to say this, and I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to get sick of this, so just, just, I want you to just hang on to this. It takes both partners. And, and I want to emphasize the fact that it's not one, and it's not the other, it's both. Marriage isn't a solo act. Marriage is two people having the same desire, hopefully. And it could be that one has a desire and the other doesn't. Well, that doesn't make a good marriage. It takes two people wanting and craving and believing and praying and hoping and striving and working for God to produce within that home a relationship that brings honor and glory to Him. And when all is said and done, it's really not about you. And it's not really about your spouse. It's really about God. The ultimate goal of mine and Susie's life is flawed and as different as we are in some areas should be to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. Now, if she has that goal and I don't, let, let me just help you with this. That ain't going to work. Or if I have that goal and she doesn't, that's not going to work. We have to both throw our hearts on an altar and yield them to God so that God can turn around and bring health and happiness into our marriage. A solo act, a solo effort won't work. Now, I want you to stay with me, because this is where I'm going to lose you right now. You're fi fixing to lose. I'm excited about that, looking forward to it. And I, I want to say this to you, that an unhealthy culture produces an unhealthy marriage. And, and I want to clarify some things, because I, th I, th I think that in our conservative movement, that sometimes there has been a misappropriation of Scripture it's funny to me, it's funny to me that we insist on we insist on scripture being kept in context except when being out of context helps us. And then we don't we don't mind so much that it be taken out of context. 
Now, I make no apologies for the fact that I am a biblicist and that I take the Bible literally. I, am, I, I take the Bible literally. I'm, I'm a biblicist and always will be. But sometimes by not rightly dividing the word of truth, what we do is we promote an unhealthy culture that sometimes uh, permeates our churches and, and sometimes it's from our church that a toxic mentality is spread into the home. And I want to talk to you about that in, in, the, in the next few minutes that we have because I, I, think, I think that it's something that, that has done a misservice and a disjustice to our homes and it's caused more division than it has coordination and it's brought more separation than it's brought unity and, and, and the damage that it has done can be seen far and wide. And, and I think to a great degree it's created... Um, uh, it's, it's created a culture within our churches that causes scandal within the church. And, and, and it hits the news and we wonder why. And sometimes it's because we've created those very same things. Sometimes the idea is given that the man is the head of the home and that's, that's in the Bible. But the idea is carried out that because he is the head of the home, he's always right. And that's not true. There have been times in my marriage that I myself have been wrong. And I think that any man that thinks because of his position that he's automatically right is deceiving himself and he's being disingenuous and, and it does nothing but elevate our pride and, and brings us to a place um, that God does not uh, want us to be in our own outlook. Wives, chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 22. <laughs> Submit yourselves unto your own husbands. That's a great verse of Scripture, guys. You ought to be shouting and standing on your chairs, waving your Bibles. But we don't give much emphasis to the last part of that verse. It says, as unto the Lord. And then we go down to Colossians, chapter 3, and boom. There it is again. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, and... And then he has to tack on that last part as is, as it is fit in the Lord. And so now suddenly the picture changes. Okay? You got a husband and a wife, and she is to submit unto him as unto not the world or not the concept of our culture or certainly not Satan. She's to submit unto him as unto the Lord. And as it is fit in the Lord. And so when we paint Christ into our picture, it changes the scenery absolutely. And it brings us onto a spiritual ground to where we both recognize that our head is Christ. And that I am to literally love her as Christ loved the church. We'll talk about that later. And that she is to submit to me as Christ, as the church does to Christ. And so in both of those illustrations, it's Christ 
that is set at the top and the husband and the wife that are set below. So the goal of both is him, not so much as each other. Not long ago when I moved to Idaho, I became aware of a book that, in my opinion, was one of the most idiotic books that was ever written by human hand. And the idea that there was no boundaries to submission and, and that regardless of what a man required of his wife, she should submit to him. And, and, and there, was no real, there was no real distinction as to where does that end? Does that mean she becomes a, a slave? Or what, what exactly does that mean? And the problem with the book is that it based that idea off of Genesis chapter 3. And it placed our homes and our wives back under the curse. That's what Genesis 3 says. She's going to be subservient to, to Adam. Okay, so, so we live now in our culture sometimes where women are still under the curse, but strangely men aren't. And that brings me to questions. What was Calvary all about? Didn't Christ become sin for us and didn't He suffer our curse on the tree and aren't we now? I mean, am I wrong? Are, are we under grace? If we're under grace, why, why are we living under the curse? Now stay with me. Some of you get nervous. That's all right. That's fine. You, you ought to be nervous. And, and then I would ask to men, what happened to your curse? If your wife is still under Genesis 3... What are you doing under John 3.16? I mean, the, the reality of the matter is, if she must, why, why must she live under the curse and you get to live under grace? And that's promoted many times within the walls of our conservative Baptist churches, and that's not the ideal that God has for a marriage. Look at me. In the beginning, God created your wife not to be your servant or your slave. She created her to be your help meet. The sin came about and curse was placed on both husband and wife. And if you're living under the curse, what are you doing in an air-conditioned building when you should be tilling the ground by the sweat of your brow? And wasn't your curse that you fell from innocence to guilt? So shouldn't you carry the guilt of your sin for the rest of your life? No. Well, I don't have to carry my guilt. Why? Because I've been forgiven. Well, she has too. So the reality of the matter is that what Jesus did for us is He's restored us back to where we belonged. You see. Andy, come here, would you? So Andy is a sinner. We know that. Anybody that knows Andy well knows that. Actually, Andy's getting baptized today. So what Jesus did, here's what happened in the garden. Man was exiled from the presence of God, okay? And he lived that way. And I, there were sacrifices continually, over and over, continually. You know what Jesus did? Jesus came down and said, I'm eliminating those sacrifices. I now will become the sacrifice. So Jesus took the hand of sinful man 
and the hand of holy God and now all of a sudden man's not exiled from the presence of a holy God man can come into the presence of a holy God come boldly before the throne of grace uh, to find help in time of need now man doesn't have to stand outside the veil now man walks inside the veil straight right up without a priest without a, a mediator of flesh and blood he comes by Jesus into the presence of a holy God and he makes his request known before the father himself okay thank you Andy so what did God do? That doesn't mean Andy's not going to get sick and the consequences of sin are in the world. It's in the relationship. Andy now has been restored to fellowship with the Holy God. So what God did for me in my relationship, you know what I'm under? I'm under grace. I'm forgiven. Pastor, what have you done? None of your business. No, I'm, no, we're all centered. Look, look at me. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. You know what that does? I don't have to carry my guilt any longer. Susie, raise your hand. She's, she's not my servant. She's not under Genesis chapter 3. I get so sick of the stuff promoted in our churches that, that is nothing... That is, that is nothing more than nauseating. It's just a, it's just a sick picture. She's not, my, she's not my slave. She's my helpmate. That's why she loses my tools. Anyhow, let's move on from that. We don't want to get back into the sin. Now, how many of you remember that? movie branded mark with a coward's name what do you do when you're branded you, that's the rifleman became a branded guy they broke his sword off and he carries a broke sword around and he's branded as a coward he had he's the whole show was him trying to break free from the brand well I was branded a sinner ran from the presence of God and yet Jesus took my hand and by his sacrifice listen Galatians 3.13, listen, listen to this verse, ready? Galatians 3.13, listen to this. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. So let me tell you something about Dean. He ain't cursed no more. Let me tell you something about Susie. She ain't cursed no more. And can I tell you something about our home? We don't live by God's grace like we're under the curse. She is my partner she is my helpmate, and we've both been freed. And we both enjoy the priesthood of the believer. Now, we're going to look at submission. And that man being the head of the home. That's biblical. That's given in the Bible. But can I help you with this? The wife being in submission to the husband doesn't give him license to be abusive. I know women that have been beaten black and blue and told by some, I don't want to use the word lunatic, so I won't use that word because using lunatic would not be good. But they've been told by some pastor, your job is to just submit. Really? 
You, you really got to have a warped heart, a warped mind, and a warped Bible to believe that God wants a woman to stay in that type of relationship. That's ludicrous. It has nothing to do with the Scripture. Curse, indulge in pornography, and yet sent home to suffer silently. That's not Bible because it isn't fit in the Lord. Now, I'm going to shift gears real quick, but I want to say to our guys this, and then, then, then i got about three minutes, but I want you to listen to me. Just because your wife takes your last name does not mean she gives up her identity. And if you think that's what the Bible teaches, eh, you, you, you drank the Kool-Aid somewhere in some church. Somebody took Scripture and twisted it for you. That's just not true. It's not true at all. Now, I want to say this, and I think this has to be said because I think it, it ought to be said. It's fair to be said. And that is, the man is not the only person that can bring a toxic culture into a home. Proverbs 21.19, the very book we're studying. Proverbs 21.9, it's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a, bad ha in, in a big house, white house. Proverbs 21.19, ten verses later, same chapter, same book. It's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Proverbs 25, 24, he says it again. It's better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. The word brawling is the same exact word as the word contentious is. And it's talking about somebody that's more likely to fight than forgive. She doesn't pardon quickly. Her grudges run deep. And there always seems to be a storm brewing. So what God is saying to us in this book, He's taking the words of a woman who has a past, and He's telling us, I can make your life better. He's, he's having the eyes of a son that looks up to a mother that started with a blemished record and adoring her now. Okay. And throughout the book, He's teaching us that it takes two. It takes two. I've made a statement. Everywhere I go, I have people talk with me. And I've had, I had a guy a couple of weeks ago, his wife weep because of the simplicity of it. I want to explain it to you. When I say, if both couples will be good Christians, you can have a good Christian marriage, I mean exactly that. I don't mean that because your partner won't agree, that that makes you less of a Christian. If my wife leaves me tomorrow, I should still be a good Christian. If I leave her today, she should still be a good... Our goal should always be to please God. But I, I want everybody to understand this thought, and that is this. You, to have a good Christian marriage, you both have to work at being what God wants you to be as Christian people. It's not one of you. Can't be one of you. It won't last in a happy state. You may survive, but you won't be happy unless you both put your heart on the table and say, I am all in. And if we'll do that, you see, it takes a king and a queen to make a castle. 
And if we'll crown each other, we can live like royalty to a degree. We'll just be the people God wants us to be. Let's bow our heads. There's some real practical things coming up in Proverbs. Very practical in, in this chapter. Very practical things coming up that I hope that we'll open our hearts to. I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on. But I know I want my marriage to be what God wants it to be. I can't respond for Susie. I can pray for her. I can only respond for Dean. I'm really not supposed to spend my life up close staring at her blemishes. I, I'm supposed to look at myself and get my heart right. Boy, that's a full-time job. Where's your marriage today? How's your marriage today? God can turn our mess into something fit for His glory. We'll just let Him. Our Lord and our God, we are flawed, flawed people. When I look back over my life, in my mistakes and my youth, my stupidity sometimes even. I'm just amazed at what you've done in my own life and my own marriage. I thank you. I thank you for Susie. Thank you for her love for me and her willingness to overlook those brush strokes that so oftentimes don't coordinate with the picture. I pray that you will help all of us here, that we might have a better relationship with you so that we can have a better relationship with those that you've brought into our life and those that we love. Bless our marriages, Lord, I pray. And in the weeks ahead, as we just take a couple of weeks to just look at this, I pray that you would give us from the story of King Lemuel, the principles that might make us better people. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. I do pray these things. Amen.